0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Tonight's program features a presentation by Professor Catherine Sickink, a Regents Professor and the McKnight Presidential Chair in Political Science at the University of Minnesota, with commentary by our own Dustin Sharp, Assistant Professor here at the Crocs School and affiliated faculty with the IPJ. Professor Sikink has published extensively on transnational advocacy networks, Latin America, and, of course, human rights. In her most recent book, The Justice Cascade, How Human Rights Prosecutions Are Changing World Politics, she traces the roots of her career to being an exchange student to Uruguay. And so I have to point out that here at USD, we're also especially proud of just being ranked number one nationally for study abroad. Professor Sikink weaves her early experience, her youthful experience in Uruguay and Argentina into a powerful history of the human rights movement and its impact on our present conceptions of justice, international relations, and individual criminal accountability at the highest levels. Assistant Professor Sharp was a Peace Corps volunteer in Guinea and later worked for Human Rights Watch and on the State Department's annual human rights report. He currently manages a human rights training initiative in three and soon to be four West African countries to strengthen civil society organizations human rights research and advocacy capacities. Please join me in welcoming Professor Catherine Sikink.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Uh, at the Joan Crock Institute to help you celebrate Human Rights Day. Um, I want to thank uh, Milburn Line for inviting me and, and uh, Milburn and Elena McCullen for hosting me today. Thanks to Dustin Sharp for his remarks. I look forward to conversing with him. And also to uh, Jerry Mackey and the, um, the uh, Global Justice Center at uh, UCSD for co-hosts as well as the other co-hosts. Um, and, and also the, what a special honor to speak at this event, honoring the Stamen family. Um, so I'm uh, speaking tonight about my, as, as Milburn said, about my just released book, um, The Justice Cascade, How Human Rights Prosecutions Are Changing World Politics, was published by W. W. Norton in September. And um, as uh, Milburn mentioned, I got interested in this topic really 30 years ago when I was an undergraduate, like a few people in the audience who aren't out studying. Um, And and I really was very marked by the experience of arriving in 1976 in Uruguay to study at the University of the Republic in Montevideo, Uruguay, and the darkest days of the Uruguayan dictatorship – Uruguay had been a country with a long democratic tradition, and in 1976, the president, the elected president of Uruguay, Juan Maria Bordaberry, in this photo, had worked together with the military to carry out a military coup in his own country. Bordaberry and the military closed the Congress, closed the Supreme Court, and started persecuting and imprisoning their political opponents. Um, two of the most important... Leading political opposition leaders fled into exile in Argentina, which was democratic at the time. Uh, one of them, the person on uh your left, Zelmar, Senator Zelmar Michelini, was a senator for the Frente Amplio, the broad front, a leftist coalition. Another, uh, Héctor Gutierrez Ruiz was the speaker of the House of Representatives the Chamber of Deputies. Um when the Argentine military carried out a coup in March 1976, all of a sudden their exile was threatened. And um, in the middle of the night, they were taken away by, uh, by unknown security forces, and three days later their, their bodies appeared with signs of torture in the streets of Buenos Aires. We now know that they were um, killed by a joint security operation between the Argentine and the Uruguayan uh, uh, military, something called Operacion Condor, the Condor operation. Uh, But at the time, um, no one quite knew who was responsible. And one of their colleagues, another opposition politician, Wilson Ferraldunate, here on your right, was also going to be kidnapped and he, he he narrowly escaped a kidnapping attempt. So he as he got ready to, f- to to flee into exile in London, he wrote an open letter to a president, the new military president of Argentina, um General Jorge Videla, who's there on your left. And in that um in that letter to Videla, uh this is what Wilson Ferreira said. He's, the letter ended this way. He said, when the hour arrives of your own exile, which will arrive, have no doubt, General Videla, if you seek refuge in Uruguay, a Uruguay whose destiny will once again be in the hands of its own people, we will receive you without cordiality and affection, but we will grant you the protection that you did not give to those whose deaths we are today grieving. Now, for me, what's interesting about this is that Wilson Ferreira, in the hour of his greatest despair, after all, he just had escaped an attempt on his life. His dearest friends had been tortured and killed. He can imagine a time when Uruguay is a democracy again, and he can imagine a time when Argentina is also a democracy and when General Videla has to flee into exile in Uruguay. But what he cannot imagine is that anyone will be held criminally accountable for the crimes they just committed. In other words, he doesn't say, he doesn't say, you will come to Uruguay, and we will give you a trial. We will give you the due process that you denied to those who grieve today, and we will convict you and put you in prison for your crimes. So the puzzle I want to talk to you about tonight is how did it happen that in that short time, short in (laughs) at least the way, at least in political or historical time, we moved from a situation in 1976 where even the victims of human rights violations could not imagine accountability, could not imagine criminal accountability. And yet uh, today, as we see, uh, a number of presidents and heads of their country have been held criminally accountable and uh, sentenced to life in prison for human rights violations. So what happened in the world to make accountability possible? Borderberry found out much later in not until April 2010 was Borderberry finally held accountable, sentenced to 30 years in prison. He died last summer. Uh, uh, serving his term. So the questions I want to talk to you about tonight are these three questions. I'm going to kind of rush through the entire argument in the book. I hope you'll bear with me. Um, the first is, well, what, where, how did this happen, that we could move from not imagining criminal accountability to having it be, uh, if not common, at least possible? What effects do these prosecutions have? Do they make any difference? do human rights actually improve because we hold people accountable? And then, you know, how can this help us think about important theoretical debates um, in international law and about deterrence of crime? Uh, The question one really has two parts I want to talk to you about. One is, how did this trend first emerge? And second, how did it begin to spread around the globe, these practices? Um, This is an overview of the entire book. Basically, what the book does is it takes up each of these questions. It has a part for each of these questions, a part about creating uh, individual criminal accountability, a part about spreading the ideas, and then a part about measuring whether human rights prosecutions make a difference. In that third part, I have a whole chapter on the United States. I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but I'd be happy to answer questions in the question and answer period. Basically, anytime you say there's a justice cascade, people are going to ask you the question, the good question, well, what about powerful countries like the United States? Are we affected by the justice cascade? Um, Now, uh, the argument I make in the book is that there's three ways of thinking about accountability. Before World War II, there was the impunity model or the sovereign immunity model, basically states and state officials were not held accountable for human rights violations. As you know, after World War II, we had the first episode of state accountability, of of individual criminal accountability, the Nuremberg Trials, the Tokyo Trials. And those were both a really important precedent for what I'm going to talk about today, but they were also the exception that proved the rule. In other words, it was only possible to hold state officials accountable if they were utterly defeated in a war. Only a foreign power could step in and hold them accountable. Um, And so what's interesting um, is that after World War II, there weren't a lot of other trials that mirrored the Nuremberg trial. Instead, states built up a human rights system through the United Nations that was a state accountability system. Basically, if a state violated rights, uh, you could try to complain to the United Nations about the actions of that state. You could try to hold the state accountable. But individuals were never sent to prison. Individuals themselves were never held accountable. And it was not until the mid-70s and the early 80s that uh, the first um, tr- in trials for individual criminal accountability were held after Nuremberg. And But those trials were very different than Nuremberg. They were not the result of military victory. They were held in countries like Greece and Portugal and Argentina where those states were holding their own former officials accountable for human rights violations. So I'm going to talk about individual criminal accountability at three levels. At the level of, of international prosecutions, this is what we mainly hear about today. Uh, these tribunals that are set up by the United Nations, uh, such as the, the uh, International Criminal Court, the ICC, the uh, Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTY, or the Tribunal for uh, uh, Rwanda, the ICTR. We also hear about foreign or transnational prosecutions. Probably the most famous of those was the trial of um, General Augusto Pinochet of, of Chile, in the United Kingdom. So he's being held accountable in courts in Spain and in the United Kingdom for crimes committed in Chile. Um, But Pinochet was not the only person. There are also in the book an example of a foreign prosecution of U.S. CIA officials who were prosecuted for extraordinary rendition, prosecuted in absentia, something that's possible in Italy, in, um, for extraordinary rendition of a terror suspect off the streets of Milan, Italy, and 25 CIA agents were convicted. And then finally, I'm going to talk about domestic prosecutions, and those are the prosecutions conducted in a country for human rights violations in that country. And what most people don't realize is it's really the domestic prosecutions that are the m- most important part of the justice cascade. So this is a, a snapshot of a database that I helped create about international, foreign, and domestic human rights prosecutions in the world. And this is a cumulative um, uh, chart of of uh, prosecution years. And so you see this is why we call it the justice cascade because there's this d- dramatic increase in criminal accountability in the world. Um, this is a, another... Um, chart about that same data, but here you can see that 62% of the prosecutions in our database are held in domestic courts. Um, And that's, I think, as it should be. I think, in general, domestic uh, courts do a good job of delivering justice because they're closest to where the crimes were committed. But it's really important to have the foreign and international tribunals as backup systems because if we didn't have the foreign and international any state official could escape domestic prosecution by going into exile that's what used to happen you know we used to have uh baby doc devalier on the riviera enjoying a comfortable retirement and the fact that you have these uh foreign and, and international tribunals makes it less possible for individuals to escape uh uh domestic trials uh by going into exile Now, this is a a different way of cutting up the database on domestic prosecutions. One of the interesting things about these domestic prosecutions is that they are very uneven in terms of where they happen in the world. And in fact, uh, it turns out that Latin America is uh, uh, the region where most human rights prosecutions have occurred. Fifty-five percent of the prosecutions in the database happen in Latin America. Sometimes I say this and people think, well, that's because there were more crimes, there were more human rights violations in Latin America. But that's not the case. Latin America did have very serious repression, but it did not have more serious repression than some other parts of the world. Um, instead, it, for various reasons, I'll talk about, it took a leadership role in, in, in really thinking about accountability. Also, there were lots of uh, prosecutions in Europe, the gray pie there, the gray piece of the pie, in Africa as well, and uh, much less in Asia and um, and the Middle East. Now, this varies with time. So, one of the things, as the uh, we've seen these transitions to democracy in the Middle East through the Arab Spring in places like Egypt and Tunisia. This pattern could change, and already we know that the former president of Egypt, Hosni Mubarak, is on trial in Egypt today. Uh, What we would call a human rights prosecution because it's for the, uh, um, the killing of individuals in street protests in Egypt before the transition. So this pattern could change over time. This is a pattern about the um, the foreign and international prosecutions, and this tells you what was the region where the human rights violation was committed. And what's interesting here is that you see that 51% of the prosecutions involve crimes committed in Europe. Um, and so contrary to some, some people think, oh, these international tribunals, they're only for countries in the global south. These are tri- some people say these are tribunals in Europe for crimes in Africa. Well, at least our database is showing that for the time being, these are mainly tribunals in Europe for crimes in Europe. This probably is largely because, in fact, very much because the tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. The ICTY has had many prosecutions, and so this pattern partly reflects the, the, the activity of the ICTY as the ICTY is closing down as you know it's just judging its its last cases right now and as the international criminal court starts taking on more and more cases we could see this pattern change now the early trial adopters these are the first 10 countries in our database that first use domestic prosecutions that first hold their own officials accountable for past human rights violations and as you'll see it's first it's to southern European countries and all the rest Latin American countries. One reason for this is that these are prosecutions that happen in transitional countries, countries that have had a transition from authoritarianism to democracy. This is the so-called third wave of democracy that uh, Samuel Huntington spoke about. And one reason we see this pattern is that's the pattern of the third wave of democracy, Started in Southern Europe, and then continued through Latin America, went then to Eastern Europe, and then continued in Africa. We might see that today, it's con- the third wave of democracy continues to go through parts of the Middle East. Um, and so, partly, these do- early trial adopters are the countries that experienced early transitions. But it's not quite so simple, because some countries uh, like. Greece and Portugal and Spain all had uh, all had transitions to democracy at the same time in Europe and yet Greece and Portugal had trials Spain to this day has had no criminal accountability for human rights violations during the Franco regime and so one question is same thing you know Argentina and uh, Bolivia had these early trials and yet you'll notice That Uruguay is not on this list uh, as an early adopter, nor is Brazil, which had a transition around the same time uh, as Argentina and Bolivia. So it's not enough just to have a transition to democracy. Other things had to happen for a country to be an early trial adopter. And so these are some of the things that that seem to help us, uh, seem to help explain why some countries are able to hold their own state officials accountable and why others are not. And and there's this, st- now here I'm I'm going to start using political science language, so bear with me a while, but this uh, one important difference is the difference of what people who work on transition call ruptured and pacted democratic transitions. So a ruptured transition is a transition like in Argentina where you'll remember, some of you will remember the um, The Argentine military, towards the end, to shore up its popularity, invaded the Falklands or Malvinas Islands, and they had a disastrous defeat. They were very delegitimized, and the regime fell. It was not able to control the transition. It fell from power, and a new uh, government took power. So uh, by a ruptured transition, we mean these governments that essentially cannot control the can transition and cannot put conditions in, in the transition. Other countries have packed it. In other words, they negotiate a deal to step down from power. So Spain, for example, the Franco forces in Spain negotiated a deal in order to uh, have a transition from power. In um, Uruguay, there was a a a pacted transition. The political party leaders signed an agreement with the military in order to have a transition. We don't know the content of what that deal was, but we're almost certain that part of the deal was we promise not to prosecute you. If you turn the country back to Democratic parties, we will give you protection from prosecution. Because not long after the transition, there was a law in Congress that, uh, that offered amnesty to all of the military. And it took all these years, that's why it took until 2010, for Bordeberry to be prosecuted, because it took that long for the amnesty to be removed. Um, but it's not just the kind of transition you have. It won't surprise you to say that it was domestic and regional human rights organizations, human rights social movements, and human rights networks that really pushed for accountability, that really pushed for uh, this kind of change in the world. And so it was in those regions of the world that had strong social movements, that had strong networks. And I know from the co-sponsors that many of the people in this room, some of you have worked with organizations like Amnesty International and others. Well, some of those organizations, Amnesty International already existed in London, still a small group, when the Greeks had their transition to democracy, and amnesty was in constant communication with domestic groups in Greece who were demanding accountability and calling for trials. So these human rights, these linkages, these networks of human rights organizations were really an important pressure for change. But it was also important that countries had started to draft human rights law. So as opposed to the Nuremberg trials which were not really on a firm foundation of law. The new trials are based more on human rights law that was drafted by states and already in place when these trials took place. So then let's turn to question number two. How did this idea travel? We've seen why it was possible for a few handful of countries to adopt it, but why does it start spreading around the globe? And one very important reason is that it actually spreads through individuals who moved and carried ideas with them. Now, at least in my discipline of political science, sometimes you hear about change. You hear about diffusion of ideas. You even hear about contagion models of diffusion of ideas. And sometimes it seems that ideas move around the globe like a cold virus, but they aren't carried by real people. And one of the interesting things about this story and what I try to do in this book is tell you the stories of the real people who struggled to make this idea real. And that, uh, it, it was not contagion. It was not a virus. It was the result of year after year of struggle and work by individuals working with organizations, sometimes never giving up, pursuing dreams that they had that they could really finally put human rights ideals into practice and enforce those ideas. So here we are. uh, Human Rights Day, as you know, is the anniversary of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was passed in 1948, it was a set of principles. It was a set of aspirations. It wasn't even law yet. And then it got turned into law, but that law often didn't have any teeth. And we all know that sometimes if you have law but you don't have any enforcement, the law doesn't get implemented. And so human rights activists around the world worked because they wanted to find a way to finally put the high ideals of the Universal Declaration for Human Rights into practice, and they wanted to find a way to enforce those ideals. Human rights prosecutions are one of those tools that has been developed to try to finally enforce and put into practice the ideals of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, So, but these individuals working through the human rights movement also worked hand-in-hand with some really important regional and international organizations. And one of the, the, the stories I really discovered was that Organizations such as the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights and then, of course, later the International Criminal Court played a fundamental role. They were, if you wish, really the allies in uh, putting these ideas into practice. And uh, so the individuals had to translate their ideas into institutions. And until there were institutions, uh, these ideas could not spread um and then eventually you get a point where through diffusion states start modeling their practices after other states. And we see this particularly with regard to truth commissions. And I think that Dustin will be speaking a little bit about Truth Commissions later. Uh but when truth commissions were first launched in Argentina in nineteen eighty three, they were a totally innovative idea. They didn't they had n- really not been used before. But nowadays, truth commissions have become kind of the thing to do. And nowadays, if you have a transition to democracy, people say, "Well, what should we do?" And one of the things you do is you have a truth commission. So eventually, there is a way where, where states start emulating. One state starts emulating another state. Um, now, I talked about the role of individuals, so I wanted to put at least one face uh, on the on the board for you, and that is. Uh, to give you an idea of what I mean by individuals traveling and carrying ideas with them. Um, this is Luis Monero Campo. Many of you know him as the prosecutor of the in, the International Criminal Court. What not everyone knows is he was also the assistant prosecutor of the trials of the juntas in Argentina in 1985. And so that's um, that, That's the young Luis Monero Campo there on in the photo on your right, and he's facing, right there in front of him, the man with the glasses, that's General Jorge Videla, who you saw earlier, the former president of Argentina, the, letter, the person that Wilson Ferrero wrote his open letter to. So here, just nine years after Wilson Ferrero wrote his letter, his open letter to Videla, here's Videla sitting in court in Buenos Aires, Argentina, uh, where he was eventually sentenced but then, when they set up the International Criminal Court, eventually Moreno Campo was asked to come and be the prosecutor, the mo- one of the most important figures in the International Criminal Court. And he was asked to do so because he was one of the people who had hands-on experience with prosecuting these large-scale human rights uh, litigations. Now, I asked, I interviewed a lot, a lot of these people, I interviewed them, and, and so I, I asked Luis Moreno What you know? What did he learn by being a system prosecutor in Argentina that helped him at the ICC? And I got some answers I didn't really expect. One of the things he said was, um, he said, "I learned how to prosecute a case when you can't depend on the police to go and arrest the people you indict." Remember, this is 1985 in Argentina. It's recently there's a transition. Most of the police are still the police of the authoritarian period, and they're trying to send these police into the barracks to turn over indictments. Um, And uh, so it wasn't always easy to try to get the, the, the police to arrest the people they were indicting. Well, it turns out that the ICC has the same problem. As you know, the International Criminal Court doesn't have its own police, and it depends also on others, in this case states, to arrest individuals that are indicted. This is why very often individuals uh, are not turned over immediately uh, to the ICC. But the other thing that Moreno Campos said, I thought was interesting, is he said, I learned ha- how to uh, basically prosecute cases while we're in the process of creating the law. So just as in Argentina when they had the trials of the juntas, no such trials had ever been held before. They didn't have a model they could turn to. Uh, And so they had to partly, they were making this up as they were going along. Well, also with the ICC, it's the first ever permanent international criminal court. And so they don't have a model either. So in both cases, Moreno Campo realizes literally they have to create the institution as they're prosecuting cases. I want to just briefly um, te- sort of this sort of briefly sums up the argument about the the book, and that is uh, the emergence of these ideas. And that is there's really what I call two streams and one stream bed. Here you notice I've got the the water metaphor going strong here. There's a justice cascade that has two streams running into it and a hard uh, lost stream bed. The first stream is a stream that most international lawyers are familiar with. It's the one that goes from Nuremberg to the tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda, the ICTY and the ICTR, and it ends up at the Rome Statute where the International Criminal Court was created. But the second stream is the one that people often ignore, and that's the one that I tell about these domestic uh, countries. They started prosecuting their own officials, so Argentina, Argentina, Greece, Portugal, and then about 20 other countries that prosecute their own officials before the ICTY is even up and running. So a lot of people think, oh, this all starts with the international community and international lawyers who know the right thing to do. But what they don't realize is that it also starts in countries around the world, and especially in Latin America, that are already prosecuting their own officials. Before one of these international tribunals has even been established, but finally, and perhaps most importantly, is there was a long, slow struggle of drafting the law and r- signing the law and ratifying the law that led to the creation of the hard law streambed that all of these prosecutions rest upon so um, And the laws that I have, they're not not all the human rights treaties. They're only the human rights treaties that have provision for individual criminal accountability. They're the ones that give lawyers the tools they need to prosecute individuals criminally, individually for crimes. Um, Okay, I'm going to turn to my last question of the talk tonight, and I want to have time for Dustin's comments and and our discussion. And that's the big final question. So what difference does it make? Um, Does it make any difference on human rights practices? What about democracy, rule of law, conflict and war? What can we say about the effect of human rights prosecutions? And first, there's a lot of arguments about this in my field. There's some people who say, yeah, human rights prosecutions should make a big difference. First, from what I said earlier, that a lot of people have long thought that unless you have enforcement, of law, you're not going to get compliance. And so finally, human rights law had some enforcement. It had these uh, prosecutions. That should lead to better compliance. It should lead to better human rights practices. Likewise, deterrence theory in sociology. Um, as you know, uh, theories of deterrence say that an increase of the likelihood or probability of punishment should lead to a decrease in crime. Now, whenever I say this, there's people in the audience thinking that they say, well, but what about the death penalty? So I want to be very clear about this. Deterrence theory has two parts. One part is what I'm saying here about the likelihood or possibility of punishment. The other part is about the severity of punishment. Okay? We know that there is not evidence that more severe punishments lead to a decrease in crime. Okay? So that's not the argument I'm making. It's not about severity. But we also know that increasing the likelihood or probability of punishment does lead to a decrease in crime. And in the international system, back in 1970, there was a zero likelihood of punishment. If you were a state official, you could anticipate utter impunity. In other words, because you you couldn't even imagine that you're going to be held accountable. Since that time, there's been a, an increase, an important increase in the likelihood of punishment. And uh, so deterrence theory should lead us to expect that, that that should lead to improvements in human rights. But there's other people who say, no, it's, you know, these trials are trouble, basically. They're going to cause problems. First, there's always the worry that if you try to prosecute the military that they will carry out a coup. They will overthrow your democracy. And, and the truth is that's what the Uruguayans were worried about. That's why the Uruguayans passed the amnesty law. They were so afraid that when they recently had returned to democracy and people were finally breathing free again, they were so afraid that was going to be reversed by another military coup. Um, But there's also, in international relations, there's also realist theory that says, no, if you threaten to prosecute these folks, they're just going to hang on to power for longer. We heard this with um, the ICC indictment of Gaddafi a lot of people thought it was a very bad idea to, to, to indict Gaddafi because they thought that would just lead him to entrench himself and stay in power longer. Um, so there's alternative arguments out there that say trials are a bad idea. So what I want to do is I wanted to test that. I used the, the database I had, and I used the, the quantitative data, and with a lot of help from some fabulous uh, graduate students and colleagues, and especially my colleague, Hun Joon Kim, who did most of the statistical work, um, we were able to test these theories. Um, the, the, the joint work with Hun Joon Kim is published in a separate article in, uh, in a journal, International Studies Quarterly. But in the book I simply try to sort of summarize the work in what I hope is a, an accessible manner for the general audience. Um, and he, what we did basically was we compared. We had 100 transitional countries. Some of those countries had used human rights prosecutions, but more had not used prosecutions. So we were able to compare the countries that used prosecutions with countries that did not use prosecutions to try to look at what impact prosecutions had. Um, and this is just a really simple, um, uh, this is not the the complicated statistical analysis, this is a simple uh, average representation of the overall argument in the book. And I'm just going to talk about the, the upper table here. Basically, the scale on the far left is a repression scale. That's a scale that we use where we code human rights practices. Uh, the higher the number, the worse it is. Basically, these are numbers that are coded from Amnesty International annual reports and from State Department uh, country annual country reports. So the the gray line in the middle is a a global mean for all of these transitional countries. Basically, how bad their their average human rights practice, or how good or bad the average human rights practices are in all of our transitional countries. The dotted gray line at the top, I hope you can see it, the dotted gray line at the top are states with no trial experience, and the dashed black line at the bottom are states with a trial experience. And so basically what this table shows is that about after 1995, countries that used prosecutions saw saw sustained improvements in their human rights situation compared to countries that did not use prosecutions. And here's another kind of version of the same issue, but looking just at the Latin American countries. What we see here is not only do countries with prosecutions do better than countries with no prosecutions, uh, but the more years of prosecutions a country has, the more improvements it sees. So again, remember the high numbers are bad. Those, are, those mean worse human rights practices. So we see the countries with no prosecutions have a higher level, and with each uh, uh, year of prosecution, the, the human rights uh, performances improve. So I just want to uh, li- end with that and just leave you with the, the basic conclusions here, is that this justice cascade was not an inevitable result of the development of law. It was a result of concerted uh, efforts of a global human rights movement um, who wanted to really basically take the Universal Declaration for Human Rights and make it work, make it effective. Um, that, but these prosecutions don't just happen everywhere. People always say to me, well, you know, if there's really a justice cascade, we would expect to see prosecutions everywhere. And the point I want to make here is, no, it still is a new enough trend that it requires special circumstances. Not every country uh, can hold these prosecutions. And they're especially likely in countries with strong regional human rights systems and active human rights organizations. And then finally... Those countries that are able to use prosecutions uh, really see improvements in human rights. Um, So, with that, I want to uh, move to the next part of the program, which are Dustin's remarks. And uh, I look forward to your comments and your questions. Thank you.
2: So I'm going to have a lot of very positive things to say about uh, the Justice Cascade and Professor Sikink's book. But before I do that, I wanted to show a brief video uh, that shows some of the negative sides of the Justice Cascade that some of you may not have appreciated. For six. So, as you can see from this video, there are some people out there who are not going to like the news and the story uh, that's told in this book, which is that little by little, uh, the world is uh, becoming a lonelier place for members of the exclusive dictators club. Uh, for a lot of other people, on the other hand, including scholars, including students, uh, practitioners, policymakers, it's a terribly important book um, that I think is going to serve to influence not just academic debates, um, but also real policy making in the, in the real world. Um, I sort of wear two hats. One is as a, as a human rights scholar, um, and the other is as a sometime human rights activist. And so I wanted to react to Catherine's book um, from the academic side, but also from the side of a, of a human rights activist. And so I'll, I'll start with the side of the, the scholar and, and the teacher. Um, every fall I teach a class uh, here at the School of Peace Studies called Transitional Justice, uh, which loosely speaking is the study of the role of justice and reconciliation, uh, mechanisms in times of political transition and in, in times of post-conflict reconstruction. And I always start off by telling my students that the field of transitional justice, which has only been around for, um, well, 10 years, is as, as a field of study, but, but the practices go back 20 or 25, um, that field is both under-empiricized and is, it's under-theorized. Um, the lack of empirical data has meant that for the last 20 years, we as scholars, as, as human rights activists, um, have been embroiled in a series of normative debates of claims and counterclaims about the effects of prosecutions, effects of truth commissions, and other tools of accountability and reconciliation. And so you'll often have one side claiming, uh, the activist side often claiming that justice is necessary in order to build the foundations for the rule of law and to lay the groundwork for for long-term peace. Uh, The other side, often the political realists, will argue that justice risks the fragile peace and could result uh, in the reignition of conflict. And so this debate goes on and on Um, in circles up through the present day. Almost every single time uh, there's an indictment of a high-level figure. So the president of Cote d'Ivoire, Uh, that was just sent to uh, the International Criminal Court this week. Of course, uh, many people predict uh, doom and disaster based on that prosecution. Um, And so much of the thinking, much of the policy, the debates in transitional justice have been organized around these these debates. Peace versus justice, truth versus justice, amnesties versus prosecutions. And the reasoning in these debates um, is not bad as far as it goes. It's often based on uh, personal experience. Um, on important case studies, often on on hunches. Um, But it's lacked a comprehensive empirical foundation that would help anchor some of these claims on one side or the other, on the peace side or on the justice side. Both of these sides have often pretended to have a crystal ball. So I look into the crystal ball and I'll tell you what's going to happen in Cote d'Ivoire as a result of the prosecution of the former president. Um, And the problem with the crystal ball is the answer it gives always depends on whose crystal ball you're looking in. Uh, The human rights activist sees peace and democracy flowering in Cote d'Ivoire. The political realist uh, sees sees disaster in the face of the prosecution. Part of the reason for this lack of empirical evidence has been that we just didn't have enough lived experience with transitional justice over a long enough period of time to uh, to really create the necessary data set uh, that's been created for this book. Um, Part of it was also, though, the fact that the field was largely dominated by lawyers Um, and by activists like myself who just can't can't do math, uh, so we run away from from the empirics. Um, So I I wanted to say, and just frame that for you, that the empirical work being done um, in this book and by social scientists like Catherine Sakink and others like Lee Payne is is incredibly important to our understanding of of the effects of transitional justice going forward. Um, I mentioned that I always tell my students that transitional justice is under-empiricized, and I've given you a little bit of an idea of what I mean by that. Um, It's also under-theorized. When you read analyses of transitional justice, whether it's an NGO or whether it's an academic, um, it's often based on a study of a single country, of a single mechanism. Somebody's making a certain critique about, say, the way that prosecutions went in Sierra Leone, or they're making a a critique of the tribunals uh, for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. Um, But but the field as a whole has not been sufficiently grounded in uh, broader theories of social and normative change. Um, How is it uh, that these trials and truth commissions, as they accumulate over time, um, how is it that they go about um, changing our perceptions and changing policies and thinking? Why is it that the world has seen around 40 truth commissions in the last 30 years? And why does that number continue to grow every single year with with several new ones um, just in the last six months? Why have we seen so many prosecutions and why does that number keep growing every single year? Um, I think Professor Sakink provides some really important theories as to how it is that these norms actually emerge, develop, and and catch on and spread. Um, If I were to take off my sort of academic hat for just a second and and talk to you from the perspective of a human rights lawyer um, and practitioner, uh, I think also the story told in this book is is tremendously empowering Um, because I have to be frank with you that as someone who's Uh, worked with and and, and spent years and years working on um, an individual prosecution, which I'll talk about in a minute, Um, the notion that uh, the meetings, the phone calls, the travel, um, all of the work that activists put into uh, making transnational advocacy networks function, uh, the idea that this might serve as a vehicle for changing people's consciousness and changing what states actually do in the real world, that is what human rights lawyers and activists hope uh, but I would be the first to say that for the most part, uh, you know, we've been a, a faith-based community. We do it because we believe it and, and we hope that it's true, um, but, but nobody really has the sort of social science or the empirics to, to back that up. Um, I mentioned that the book is important for students and, and policymakers and practitioners, but I also think it's a really important book for the victims of, of human rights abuses themselves. Um, and around 10 years ago, I was working in Chad, in the center of uh, North Africa, on the very early efforts to prosecute Hissin Habre. Hissène Habre was the president of Chad during the 1980s. Uh, he uh, lived off of support from the US government um, in France, who saw him as a bulwark against Gaddafi. And a truth commission that was appointed after his death estimated that he was responsible for the deaths of around 40,000 political prisoners. Uh, so not a nice fellow. So when I went to Chad um, in an effort to organize uh, the torture victims and help them gather the types of evidence that would be necessary to try to prosecute, Hissin Habre, he was being called the African Pinochet. Um, uh, When I sat down with these victims, and I think I said the word uh, international justice, and one of the the women there, uh, a torture victim herself, looked up at me and just, she sort of chuckled and said, well, since when has justice come all the way to Chad? Um, and it was, it was a sort of striking realization that, for me that despite the work they were putting into that for, for a lot of these torture victims, uh, the notion of justice was much more of a, a punchline um, than, than it was a serious possibility. And yet I think that the victims that I, I sat with that day around the table uh, would have been very comforted to know uh, that in many ways they were part of a global struggle struggle for accountability and that efforts in Chad were actually building upon efforts in Argentina and in Chile and many other parts of the world that are discussed in this book. Um, I think those same women back in 1991 um, would have been very encouraged to know that they were paving the way for prosecutions of other former African presidents, like Charles Taylor of Liberia, um, who's now in The Hague before the special court for Sierra Leone, and President Lauren Bagbo of Cote d'Ivoire, who just made his first appearance before the International Criminal Court. Uh, 10 years later, I live in in, in, uh, San Diego, not, not Chad, uh, but a global coalition of NGOs is still working for the last 10 years to try to bring Heast and Habre to justice. I was only there at the very early days when we were gathering the evidence and starting the lawsuit. So to those who are in the trenches and trying to make these cases happen um, and further the justice cascade, um, that work towards accountability often feels a lot more like a justice trickle uh, than it does a cascade. But I think that the notion that the broader arc A very recent history bends towards justice and accountability, um, which is a story told in this book, can be very sustaining for those people who are in their 10th or 11th year of trying to put one of these dictators behind bars. Um, I think that uh, Professor Sakink is right to point to the emergence of the justice cascade, meaning that the norm has taken on a new legitimacy. Um, At the same time, I think she would be the first to admit that the norm remains fragile, and it might not have the same purchase in all corners of the globe in sub-Saharan Africa, where I do most of my work, the perception that powerful nations stand as an exception uh, to the growing trend of worldwide prosecutions, and the perception, whether inaccurate or not, uh, that the international justice movement has somehow singled out Africa for special attention uh, can be corrosive, um, and has in fact produced instances of backlash. So I think much work remains to be done to shore up the norms uh, that serve to underpin the justice cascade in Africa I'm um, in Asia, those small wedges that you saw on the chart up there with the smaller numbers of prosecutions. Um, and we might add that uh, North America uh, should be added to that list as well, where a lot of work needs to be done in terms of impunity in this country. I think the recent killing um, or targeted assassinations of people like Bin Laden, Gaddafi, uh, the American cleric, Anwar al-Awlaki, are, are further signs that the norm underpinning the justice cascade is not yet as tenacious um, as, it, as it needs to be. And uh, in terms of the work that needs to be done going forward, though, one of the things that I really like about the book is that it provides some very important lessons for citizen activism. Um, In the end, it's very often citizens, it's NGOs, that play the crucial role in making rights real. It's not governments um, or intergovernmental agencies, it's citizens groups and activists. Um, And it's through that continual process of activism, awareness-raising and action that eventually certain norms, uh, like the norm that human rights abusers should face justice, are actually internalized by governments, and they're internalized by publics, who come to see them as simply the right thing to do. What else would you do with someone who killed 40,000 people? Of course you put him in jail. He doesn't get the Nobel Peace Prize, um, although that's been the, the sort of historic joke. Um, so I wanted to finish with a quote by the legal scholar uh, Harold Coe, um, who's a scholar of what's called transnational legal process, uh, but he also talks about this idea that uh, those who make human rights real are people like us. And he says that international human rights law is enforced not just by nation states, not just by government officials, not just by world historical officials, but by people like us, by people with the courage and commitment to bring human rights law home. Thank you. Okay, so Milburn wanted to present a small gift to Professor Sukim. Thank you. You like
1: Yes. Book?
0: Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.